Our scripture for this evening comes from, uh, again, from 1 John, this time from the third chapter, and we will begin uh, at the 11th verse and read through the end of the chapter. 1 John, chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. Hear now God's word to us tonight. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray together. Your goodness to us, O Lord, is manifold. We see it in so many ways. And not the least of those evidence of your goodness is that you give your word to your people. And we ask this night that you who are the giver of that word will also be the one who directs us in our understanding and that you will enable us, O Lord God in heaven, not only to understand this word, but in particular to understand that it points us to you, O great God, and to you, our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we receive this good gift from you, that we will love you and we will serve you well. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, we we return this evening to uh, uh, 1 John after a a good long hiatus from looking at John. And I, I hope that as we start looking at this, that you will recall that John writes this letter to those he calls his beloved, and sometimes he calls them his little children, and he writes to them in order to to assure them that they are in a right standing with their Savior, Jesus Christ. And he, he wants them to see that they are in a right standing over against those who we might call the schismatics, those who have left them, who don't stand in a good place with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in, the, uh, in, in part, he bases his, his argument on, on, in part, who Jesus is. And we saw that as we looked through the first part of the first chapter. He also bases it on the fact that, that God is a forgiving God. And he also pointed that out to us in that first chapter. He also uh, argues in this letter that uh, Jesus is coming again and that when he comes back again, and we don't know what we will be like, but he has those wonderful words to say to us. We don't know what we will be like, but when we see him, we shall be like him. 
It's a part of his argument about why these people have a right standing before God. And through all of this, he keeps coming back to this one part, and that is that the people that he's writing to, those his little children, those he calls his beloved, that they ought to love one another, that what ought to characterize these people to whom he's writing is that they, they have love for one another. So, so let's try to jump into this. And in this text before us, he, he emphasizes once again this, this theme that, that has popped up a number of times and it's gonna continue to pop up in this text, that they ought to love one another. But in this passage that we read tonight, he, he does this in a couple of ways. First of all, he has what I would call an, a negative uh, uh, kind of comparison. And that negative comparison is a comparison that we see uh, with Cain. And then he has a positive comparison, and that comparison is uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And after he gives these uh, two comparisons, then he offers to his people uh, some comfort. And so let's look at this text under those three heads. Uh, Cain, if you will, Christ, if you will, and then the offer of comfort. Uh, John has, has been seeking to impress upon these that he calls his beloved friends uh, the importance of loving one another. And he wants him to show love, as I've already mentioned, over against the characteristics uh, of those who have left them. And he, he, he belabors this point. And the only reason we can make, the only reason that I can think of that he belabors this point is, one is that that love is pretty much lacking in those schismatics, in those who have left uh, the flock. Uh, also, it is so important uh, for John uh, that the people that he writes to don't get infected with whatever it is that leads these people away from loving one another. And, and before we go too far in this, as John belabors this, I think it's important for us to recognize that, that as John belabors this, there has to be a reason, not only in his context, but in a continuing context. And I think we have to recognize that there is the very real possibility, there's a high likelihood that in a congregation like this, people who, who uh, profess to be followers of the Lord Jesus, people who profess uh, to want to serve him, it's possible, but the love that he's talking about here is lacking. Or if it's not lacking, it's something that needs to grow. So as we, as we look at John belaboring this point, I hope we don't get to the point and say, oh no, that again. It's, oh no, that again, because I might need to hear it again, and again, and again, and again. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that there are many things that you need to hear again, and again, and again, uh, because there are problems with us. And it strikes me that that's what John is addressing here. Um, he reminds his audience that they have been told this. And he says, you have been told this from the very beginning. When you started your Christian life, one of the things that you learned was that you not only loved the Lord Jesus, but that you loved one another. That's a part of the Christian life. It's integral to the Christian message. And if we don't get that from the Christian message, then we have lost something that is an essential characteristic of love. I mean, John himself records Jesus' words, by this shall they know that you are my disciples. What? If you love one another. So John is saying this is something that has been characteristic of the message that they have heard. 
Now, in order to impress his, his audience with the importance of loving one another, he uses what I've called a negative example. And that example, for that example, he chooses Cain. And uh, I think we can assume that the story of Cain and Abel was one that was very familiar uh, with his audience. And I'm going to follow John's precedent and assume that, and that you all know the story of Cain and Abel as well, so we don't have to look at the details. If you don't know it, uh, when you go home, you can go back and you can see it in Genesis chapter 4. John points out that the source of Cain's anger toward his brother was because it came from the devil, and John calls him the evil one. And, and the point that John wants us to get is that, that the lack of love comes because of the influence that the devil has upon people. And uh, in addition, we should recognize that the lack of love is used by Satan uh, to, to lead those he influences to do heinous things. And John, in this situation, points out it's just like murder. That's what he's arguing for here. Uh, he points out that, that uh, the underlying element in Cain's murder of his brother Abel was that, that he did this uh, evil and uh, that uh, it was an evidence of his evil, that it was a characteristic of his evil, and that we can judge then that uh, uh, Abel's uh, uh, offering that he made was righteous. Now, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 4, tells us that, that, that uh, Abel's offering was, was by faith, and that was why God commended him. And it strikes me that we can make the assumption then that, that uh, Cain's offering was not by faith, and that's why it was evil. And, and John sort of picks up on that, if you will, and describes it as his actions as evil, his offering as evil. Now, um, when we look at verse uh, 15 in this, this text, uh, uh, we see that, that hate and murder are, are similar. And what I think John is trying to get across here is that uh, Cain hated his brother rather than loving him, and he chose hate and murder over love because he was being influenced. He was, he was, he was captivated, if you will, or captured, if you will, by the very power of the devil. That's, that's what John seems to me John is trying to get across to us. And, and we shouldn't be surprised that, that John's teaching about these uh, and about how the influence of the evil one uh, <coughs> leads people to engage in, in hate. Uh, he tells his friend uh, that you know about this. And what he tries to do is to illustrate this. And he uses the idea that, that the world hates you. And the reason why the world hates you is because they don't know to, to love you. And this illustration from Cain is something that, that Christians are regularly exposed to. I, I think in, in, in the society in which we live, we often forget that if we're faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, that the world does hate us. They may gush over us, they may love us. But when we behave and act as Christians and we confront them with their wrongdoing and with their sin and with their hopeless estate, that's when this hate, that's when this evil, that's when Satan comes along and he pushes them. That's what John is, is trying to get at. And, and, and when we experience that kind of hate, whether it comes in terms of, say, persecution, whether it comes in terms of something kind of a rejection, and whether it comes in some form of, of ridicule. It strikes me that one thing that we ought to do is not to sort of get our backs up in order, but we ought to remember, this is helping me to understand what happens when people are under the influence of the devil, and what am I supposed to do in response? I'm supposed to love other people. 
In particular, I'm supposed to love the brothers and sisters in Christ. And so instead of us getting angry at those uh, uh, rejection of that ridicule, it seems to me it's worthwhile for us to be reminded that we ought to love one another. Now, don't fail to see the contrast between the way in which the world treats Christians and the way in which we should treat one another. That's, that's John's central point that he makes here. We go on and we look in uh, verse 14. John wants his readers to understand his, cross, his contrast more fully so that uh, <clears throat> he explains how love is a sign of new life in Christ. Uh, and there are, are many ways in which God indicates to us, shows us, uh, what it means for us to be in Christ and whether we're born anew or not. And uh, one of them is whether or not we have love for other Christians. And that is, uh, they're important to us. Uh, we seek out their welfare. We seek to do things that are for their benefit and deny some of the things that might even be selfish in our situation. Uh, that's what he's talking about. And, and uh, if one doesn't show love uh, and the sign of loving others, then there is a reason for one to question whether the work of the Spirit has gone in them, whether they really are walking with him. And, and John is explicit in using this example. Just hear his words. Whoever does not love abides in death. I, I, that's a very bald statement. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's troubling. It's a little discombobulating, if you will, to just look like that. You lack love, and then, you know, you're, you're not in uh, favor with the Lord Jesus. And this lack of love, this lack of the sign of new life, is, 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 is sort of like missing a sign while you're driving on a, on a highway. And it just so happens that the sign said, beware, bridge out ahead. And you keep along going along on that road, and you're heading for disaster because you missed the sign, and you didn't go in the right direction. And if we don't have love, that's a sign that tells us that we're walking in the right direction. And if we miss that sign, then we are walking toward tragedy. Uh, as I mentioned, John equates hatred with the absence of, of love and with murder. And I don't think I'm engaged in some kind of idle speculation to assume that the Apostle John was with Jesus when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, that he was there and that he heard that. And you may recall what the Lord Jesus said on that occasion. Let me just read to you from Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. At Jesus' point, and I'm suggesting to you John's point as well, is that murder is not simply an outward act. Uh, but also an inward feeling. Uh, we're guilty of murder uh, when we are angry with one another, when we are upset with one another in that way. And John's, John's conclusion is, is quite harsh in this situation. He says, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, I don't take this to mean that John says that murder is an unforgivable uh, uh, sin. I don't think that's what he's talking about. But he's saying that unforgiven murder, murder that one doesn't ask for forgiveness for, is something that, that, that keeps us from, uh, from enjoying uh, uh, the, 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 the goodness of being in God's presence. And when we think about that, it's, it's striking. Uh, you know, we, we often think, well, murder, yeah, that's not me, that's somebody else. Uh, but remember what Jesus said, you fool! You're guilty. You're guilty. You see, these are harsh statements. And, and I, 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 personally, I'm troubled by John's conclusion. 
I've been angry with other people. I've said unkind things to Christians and about Christians. And uh, uh, I've done that about brothers and sisters in Christ. Have I hated them? I hope not. Uh, certainly I failed to love my fellow Christians and Jesus and John are showing me that that's a form of murder. And that's something that I have to confess to God and I have to ask for his forgiveness and for that kind of thing. And my suspicion is, brothers and sisters, I'm not the only one in this room who has said nasty things to other people and have thought nasty things about other Christians. And if we've done that, then we have to go to God and we have to confess that like Cain, we're murderers. You see, we haven't loved one another. Think on that, if you will. Now let's look at, at, at John's second uh, uh, comparison, and that is the comparison that he has with Christ. John is not satisfied to just give us this, this uh, negative example of love and love for other Christians. He adds the example of the Lord Jesus as the one who demonstrated so very clearly in a positive way uh, what love looks like. Uh, the example that John offers <clears throat> is that Jesus laid down his life. Uh, and in John and all the New Testament, the highest example of love is the love that Jesus showed. It's the epitome of love, is his self-sacrifice on the behalf of sinners, just like all of us, like we are. Uh, the apostle not only acknowledges the greatness of uh, Jesus' love, but he also calls upon his beloved children to follow the model that Jesus sets there. And, and in making this, this requirement that not only were, was Jesus laying down his life, but that we, like Jesus, are to lay down our lives as well for our brothers, uh, in making this requirement, John is reflecting the very teachings of the Lord Jesus. It's interesting that, that John himself records in chapter 15 uh, these words of, of Jesus, uh, beginning at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And, and, and we need to be careful here when we look at this. This is, a, this is a model. We don't want to get the idea that somehow we can offer ourselves as a kind of substitutionary atoning sacrifice. That's not what John is talking about here. But he is talking about us having the same kind of love for one another, a kind of love that would enable us to lay down our lives for someone else. And... Uh, uh, he puts this obligation, John lays this obligation on us, and, and when, we, when, we, when, we, when we think a minute about it, it's, it's an overwhelming obligation. Uh, and, you know, even though few of us have ever found ourselves in a situation where we thought it was appropriate to lay down our lives for one another, and that's what John is telling us ought to characterize us, that we are ready to do that. And, and perhaps while John's audience uh, is contemplating the, the enormity of what characterize, uh, characterizes genuine Christian love, uh, John adds something else. And my take is that this addition that John offers to us is really uh, a bit of, of irony because uh, he, he uh, it's, it's, for example, while the people are contemplating uh, this call for loving self-giving, uh, John tells them that there is a common, almost, almost easy way to show love as well. And, and while we may ask ourselves, you know, if I've ever been in a situation where I'd have to lay down my life, uh, if I was in that kind of a situation, would I be willing to do that? John asks us if we're willing to share our bounty with a Christian in need. That strikes me. 
Here we are in the richest country in the world. Bounty characterizes us. My suspicion, there's somebody in this room this evening who sometime in the last few months has been embarrassed because of waste of food. That's how much, that's how much food we have. And John asks us this question. Are we willing to share our bounty with one another? Because that willingness to share our bounty with one another is the same as willing, willing to lay down our lives for one another. That's what he's, that's what he's talking about here. And as we, as we think about this, sharing our, our, our bounty with one another, uh, we, we have to be, be clear that this is one of the ways in which we show love. And it strikes me that John really nails us uh, when he describes an unwillingness for us to, uh, to share our bounty with those in need. It's like we are closing our hearts. Uh, the translation we have says we close our hearts. It's interesting that the very word that John uses here in, in uh, chapter 20 of his gospel is the word that he uses to talk about the, the door uh, that was in with the apostles when they were, they were gathered together after Jesus' resurrection. And, and in, in chapter 20 of John, that word, I think, is uh, properly translated locked. And John is asking us, if you will, are our hearts locked? Locked against those of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have these, these, these needs. And if we shut or lock our hearts against the need of other Christians, John wants to know one thing. How does the love, God's love, abide in you? That's his question. That's a question he asks. And do you see the irony of all this? We are wondering, how could we do something so overwhelming as laying our lives down for us? And John is saying, hey, <laughs> have you even locked your heart? against giving something that you have lots of for those who have less? A very, very uncomfortable question. Uh, a question that, that's striking. And, and John doesn't give us any relief. He continues. He tells us, don't simply talk about love. Don't simply have it as something that you discuss. But he says, uh, Engage in sacrifice. We are to love in truth. That is, in, in reality, not in an abstract manner. And, and if you're like I am, once again, you find yourself troubled by, by, by what we read in these verses. Um, dying for another is frightening. You know, it's something I could ask myself, could I ever do that? I don't know that I've ever even been in a situation to test it. But I got lots, and others don't. And have I locked my heart? so that I don't see their need. And if I locked my heart so that I don't understand what it means to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, have I locked my heart so that I've lost some understanding of what Jesus did for me on the cross? Because that's the example that John gives. That's the fundamental point he's trying to make for us. This is the example you ought to follow, the example of Jesus. And if I have locked my heart, have I blinded myself as well? So I understand some way what it means for Jesus to love me. It's troubling. It's troubling, clearly troubling. But, but John, who's always the pastor, he uses these examples, both the negative one of Cain and the positive one of the Lord Jesus. And my suspicion is that John, John understands 
understands these comparisons and he understands what they might do to his people. And he gives us the key to dealing with this when we feel that guilt. He tells us so very clearly in verse, uh, in verse 19 of this text. And he tells us that, that we can know we are following the truth and we can reassure our hearts. And he says, this is what it is. And that this that he uses there is what he's going to pick up on in the verses that, that follow. So let's, let's look at them as John offers us this comfort. And one way to look at, at verse 20 of chapter 3 is to see the heart as if it functions somehow like our conscience. And, and under this, uh, this approach, uh, uh, we, we are struck in our hearts by the clear failure to, to love each other as God requires of us. And uh, John offers to us the comforting assurance that God is on our side. Uh, the condemnation of our hearts uh, brings us our culpability to mind. It brings it before us. And it's only matched by the fact, John tells us, that, that God knows all things and God is greater than our hearts. Uh, you look at commentaries and everybody's got all kinds of ideas about talking about the greatness of God. But what I'd like for us to concentrate on is the greatness of his grace. Because I think that's the way in which John offers us comfort if we are convicted by these two uh, contrasting uh, uh, comparisons that he makes. Um, as we, when our hearts condemn us, it's the greatness of grace that brings us, us comfort, hope, and assurance. And, and John wants to know that even in the midst of, these, of this condemnation of our heart that it brings, there is still good news that comes because God is the one who overcomes our hearts. Remember back in verse 9 of chapter 1, a verse that many of you remembered as he describes who God is? You know, he is a faithful God. And what is he? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the greatness of God's grace. That's the wonder of it. When you, when you think, did I say something? that would make me guilty of murder because I did not love my brothers and sisters in Christ as I should, but I even went so far as to call them foolish and stupid. I say, Lord, forgive me. I have broken your law, forgive me. And he says, I forgive you. I have taken your sin from you. And I have placed the consequences of your sin upon my son, the Lord Jesus. And your sins are gone. I cleanse you. You see, that's the greatness of God's grace. That's the wonder of it. And that's why John, when he says, when your hearts condemn you, that God is greater than our hearts because he has this greatness, this greatness of his grace. And it's not only the greatness of God's grace that John talks about, but it's also... Uh, something that he will go on and tell us more about as he goes along in, in the rest of this letter as he shows it to us. And in this chapter, uh, he tells us of, of whoever embraces Jesus in faith will have, have God abiding in him. And we're going to come back and look at that in a little bit. Uh, part of the comfort also comes from the greatness of God's grace is due because of the fact that God knows all things. And what is he talking about here? How is that comforting when God knows all things? Well, my suspicion is that, that there are times when the way in which we handle sin is to sort of pretend like they didn't happen. To sort of pretend like it wasn't really that bad. And, and sort of have in the back of our minds this sort of silly hope that it'll just go away. 
You know, like we deal with other people, don't talk about it, maybe it'll just disappear. But God knows everything. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what you did. He knows how you broke his law, you know. He knows that he could say to you, look at you, you are a murderer. He could look at you and say, you don't show love because you have and you did not give to somebody who didn't have. God knows these things, but God also knows that into our hearts. He knows that that guilt that you feel, that that guilt that comes to you and it, it gets inside you, and it upsets you. It actually can sometimes almost be a physical hurt. You can lie down in bed at night and think about the evil that you've done and it's almost like it's pushing on your chest. God knows that. God knows that the spirit he has sent to work in your hearts is working in your heart. And he's convincing you of the ugliness of your sin He's impressing upon you the ugliness of your sin. And this God who is greater than your hearts, greater than the condemnation that your hearts have, because he's a God of great grace, is the God that will teach you to cry out to him, forgive me, Lord, and he will forgive you. John recognizes that this is so very important. And if we follow the line of the greatness of God's grace brings comfort, uh, then God's knowledge adds to that. And while our hearts are condemning us, God knows the deep recesses of our heart. And that ought to be reassuring to us. It ought to be encouraging to us. We may doubt our faith. We may struggle with all kinds of things. We may wonder what's going on because we've been confronted with our wrongdoing. But in the midst of that, God is there. He's greater than our do the doubts of our heart. He's greater than the condemnations of our heart. And brothers and sisters, that's a part of what John wants to get across. He wants to reassure, as we'll see as he finishes this chapter, he wants to reassure people of the kind of God that he is. And he's greater than the condemnation of our hearts, and he knows all things. And John recognizes that there are others who, who receive this letter who are loving their brothers and sisters in Christ. And in verses 21 and 22, he tells us about it. And he says they're sharing with others. They're, they're, they're giving evidences of their love. And John assures those whose hearts don't condemn them that they can approach God in, in confidence with some kind of assurance as they talk with him. And I think it's important for us to get hold of the contrast uh, many of us as Christians, when we sin and when our sin comes to pressure us, uh, when it comes to things that we do, oftentimes with a certain kind of consistency, that failure to love one another, uh, that, 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 that ease with which we can get upset with one, or one another, uh, when those things come to us, oftentimes our reaction is, is I don't want to pray to God. It's, it's, it's almost like, you know, we're embarrassed you know, how you do something silly to somebody else and you think, uh, well, if I don't get around them, they won't know about what I did to them. And we treat God in that way. It seems to me that, that John doesn't want to encourage that kind of foolishness. And so he tells us about these people who can go and they can, they, they can, they can have free uh, access to God. They can talk to him, they can go into his presence. It seems to me he's probably emphasizing prayer here in particular. And, and these people that they can go, God hears them. And as God hears them, he grants to them what they want. Now, be careful here. You don't make a, make a foolish mistake and see this as some kind of quid pro quo. You know, God says to you, you do something good, I'll do something good for you. That is not the way it works. Uh, 
That's not the way in which it works at all. It is because God works in us and he enables us to be good servants of his. He works in us so that we, we learn obedience. He works in us so that we feel badly when we call somebody a fool. We feel badly when we get angry with someone. We feel badly when we actually feel hate bearing up inside of us. We feel terrible about that. He comes and he confronts us with our sin. He calls us to repentance. We come back to God and we begin then to obey him. And John says those people, through their obedience, through their access to God, are the ones that God brings his favor to and that he uh, answers their prayers for them. John goes on in, in verse 23 to remind them that, that there is one overarching commandment that these people ought to obey. And he tells us what that commandment is, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. And John's ministry was, was characterized by, by trying to get this, this across, that people might uh, believe in the Lord Jesus. You, you may remember back a ways when uh, uh, Larry went through uh, John's gospel, and he told us uh, more than once the reason why John, John wrote that gospel. Let me just recall that for you uh, from John chapter 20, verse 31. He wrote these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And here he offers assurance to his followers by telling them to obey this commandment, to, to believe in the name of Jesus, to rest and trust in Jesus is what he means here by, by believing. And what does it mean to believe in the name? Well, he's picking up on something that's very Hebraic. It comes from, from his Old Testament understanding of what it means that a name, as one lexicon tells us, is the name is used for everything which the name covers everything, the thought or feeling of which is aroused uh, in the mind uh, by the mentioning of the name or by the hearing of the name. And, and note the way in which John associates believing in Jesus with loving one another. Here is the command. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and love one another. John just associates them. He doesn't let us somehow think that we can, we can love Jesus and we can believe in Jesus. And that's all that we need to do. John is saying, if you love Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, one of the consequences of that love and that belief is that you will love the brothers. That the person sitting in this room will all love you and you will love all of them. That's a consequence, is what John is telling us about this great and wonderful commandment. And, and John goes on to tell us in terms of reassurance uh, for his people that, that the, as the result of keeping the commandment uh, to love, uh, to, to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is that God then abides in us. John has used this notion of abiding before, and he will use it again. It's, it's a common element in this book. And, 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 and abiding means a, a kind of a double idea. One is that it's constancy. It can sometimes be translated remain. But it's also like he takes up residence. You see, you know what it's like when somebody takes up residence in your house? I don't care if it's another person or even if it's an animal. And when, when someone takes up residence in your house, they're noticed. Their presence is there. It's, it, it, 
It just gets you. You can't ignore it. It's just there, you know, whatever little thing they do. And, and, and John is saying to us that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we love our brothers and sisters, that God abides in us. He takes up residence in us. And the other figure that he uses uh, for this is in the 15th chapter of his, his gospel where he uses the figure of a, of a vine and, and the branches, and that the, the branches live because of the vine, uh, what the vine gives, and that's, that's what God does. He works in us. And John is telling us that while you're struggling, while you're facing this, this dilemma, if you will, you know, do I ever hate anybody? Do I ever cross over that line? Do I ever be the one who refuses and locks up my heart and refuses to recognize those who have need? He's saying, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this God comes and he forgives you of all your sin and cleanses you for all unrighteousness because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. And then God comes and he abides in us. He lives in us. And John's desire to assure his little children about their, their relationship with Jesus uh, comes out when he tells them how they can know that God abides in them. When we get to the end of this text, he says that we can be sure because the Holy Spirit works in them and likewise abides in them. In other words, we can be sure that God is abiding in us because the Holy Spirit convinces us, he continually assures us uh, uh, that, 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 that God is on our side, that this God who's uh, greater than our hearts, who knows all things, is really on our side. That's what the Holy Spirit does when he works in us. And, and the Holy Spirit works in us. He, he, he works in our minds. Uh, he convinces us that, the, that what the Bible says about a Christian is true. That what the Bible says about Christians is they believe in Jesus, and when they believe in Jesus and they trust him as their Savior, God takes away their sins. They believe that. But not only do they believe that, when they hear that and they, they, they rehearse that belief, if you will, in their minds, they get this sense, they get this emotional sense that my sins are gone, that I'm not guilty anymore, that this Jesus cleanses me and, and I'm free from the consequences of those sins. You see, that's what the Spirit does. He assures us of that as he comes in us. And he works in, 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 in a kind of marvelous and mysterious way that we can be assured that even when we face these, these harsh elements of sin, that Jesus is able to forgive us. And not only is Jesus able to forgive us, he does. He does forgive us. And, 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 and the Spirit works in us so that when we have these doubts, we remember what Jesus did. He hung upon Calvary's cross. He died there. And why did he die there? The Spirit works in us, and he assures us. Jesus died on the cross, and he hung there, and he suffered the wrath of God. And when he suffered the wrath of God, he took my place, and I won't suffer the wrath of God. You see, that's what, that's what John is trying to assure his friends of. That's what John is trying to assure these beloved ones about. And we've talked about a lot of things tonight, because John talked about a lot of things. But I hope, yes, I hope, brothers and sisters, that some of you, maybe all of you, are convicted by the comparison with Cain. That sometimes you don't love, 
And that love that's lacking is characterized by things like anger, and even to the point maybe of hating, of falling, up, falling under what Jesus says, that if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of the judgment. I hope we've come under the conviction of that. I hope we've come under the conviction that when we, when we think about what love really is and we think about what the Lord Jesus Christ did and we think that he says that, that if you love me, you lay down your life for your friends. And then he says, if you don't do that, at least do this. Don't lock your heart against those in need. Give out of your bounty. I hope you were convicted by that. I hope it made you just a little bit uncomfortable. Because if it made you a little bit uncomfortable, when I offer to you the good news of the gospel, Jesus can take away that sin. And Jesus does take away that sin, that sin that you feel even now, because of what he did upon Calvary's cross. And you, my brothers and sisters, can be assured of sins forgiven because of what Jesus Christ did. You may be uncomfortable, you may be squirming, but I trust you also are filled with joy and gladness and that you're reassured of the wonder, of the absolute wonder that because Jesus loved you, you can love others, even to the point of giving your life for them. Ask the Spirit to give you that kind of assurance, to give you that kind of joy of sins forgiven, to convince you that you who have believed in the name of Jesus Christ will also love one another. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we come to you and we acknowledge that we're sinners. We acknowledge that we have not loved as we should. In fact, we have done the opposite. We acknowledge that we have locked our hearts against the needs of others. And we pray that you will forgive us, that you will cleanse us. And we were confident that you will do so, O sovereign God, because of what Jesus did for us, you who are the faithful and just God, that you will forgive us and you will cleanse us. And we pray, Sovereign Spirit, work in us, reassure us, and lead us in the way of loving our brothers and sisters, even as you, O Lord Jesus, have loved us. We pray this for your sake, Jesus, and we say together, Amen.